Have you ever been cross-examined? Have you ever been deposed? Now, some of you laughed. I may be referring to a legal context, or I may be referring to just a personal context. I can tell you in the legal context, if you've never been cross-examined, I hope that stays that way for the rest of your life. I'm someone who cross-examines or deposes people, and I tell my witnesses as I'm preparing them, I said, this is about one of the most unfair things that you can ever go through. It is unfair because you have a lawyer who's been preparing and strategizing and looking at documents and looking at all these things, and their simple goal is to get you to say something that's bad for your case. Now, when you're on my side of the table and you're, you're on the side of truth and justice, that's okay. But when it's the other side and they're on the side of fraud and deceit, then, of course, we hate it. It's horrible. This is terrible. You should laugh about that. Um, you should laugh. That was a little bit of a joke. No, we always think that we're on the side of truth and justice. But nonetheless, being cross-examined is very, very challenging. And I start there because for at least the next three weeks, we are going to look at Jesus being cross-examined. Jesus, in a real sense, is on trial. Oh, not his actual criminal trial. That will come later before a man named Pilate and ultimately before a man named Herod. This is his religious trial. It is his theology trial. It is the trial in which all the forces of elite Judaism. Now, who are those forces? We started looking at them over the last two weeks. The Sanhedrin, the religious body of 71 men, who was the, almost the legislature of Judaism. The Pharisees. Those were the people who were the arbiters of the Mosaic law. They were the interpreters of the law, of religious custom and duty. The scribes themselves, expert in trying to understand and interpret the Old Testament of the Bible. The Sadducees, the wealthy, privileged, as we'll see later, not necessarily theologically orthodox group. And then another group, the Herodians, we'll look at them a kind of political class, a political party of people. They are opposed steadfastly to Jesus, and they are threatened by him. He has entered Jerusalem claiming to be king. He's riding on a donkey. The people are chanting Old Testament. Thank you, Ben. Messianic slogans. Hosanna. Salvation. He is coming in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one that is coming. They see this. They are threatened by him. And they are steadfastly opposed to him as a person. And so now, publicly, in front of the group of people that are listening to him teach, they are aiming to discredit him. Now, if you were attorney, an attorney, or you have ever been through cross-examination, you know this. Our job as attorneys at trial, when someone is getting up to testify about the other side's story, to shade the truth in some way, to try to prevent some deceptive narrative, it's our job to discredit them. We call it impeachment, to impeach their credibility, to make the jury members look at them and say, I don't believe them. I don't believe them. And likewise, the other side is trying to to deal with the credibility of of our own witnesses. That's the idea of trial. And now these people are coming together, these religious elites, and they are looking at Jesus and saying, how can we destroy his credibility? How can we prove that he's not the Messiah, that he's not the king in God's kingdom? And so they come at him in waves. Today, and God willing, next week and the week after, we're going to look at the subject of Christ on trial. Christ on trial. As I said, not his criminal trial. His religious, his theology, his doctrinal trial by the religious elites of the day. The title of the message this morning is Christ on Trial, colon, God and Caesar. God and Caesar. And you're going to see something over these next three weeks that is just absolutely 
masterful. In the book of Luke, when it recounts this same story, this same narrative, Luke makes sure to tell us that the people of Jesus' day, the elites, were so upset because as they were cross-examining him, they could not lay hold on his words. You're going to see that over the next three weeks. Christ on trial, they couldn't get him in their grasp. It was the fishing, fishing opener this week. Some of you may have gone fishing or not. How many of you have ever tried to grab on and hold on to a fish for an indefinite period of time? Just grab it and hold that thing, and then it starts squiggling around your hands, and suddenly it's on the floor of the boat or flopping around on the dock. Here's the difference with Jesus. We're going to see over these next several weeks, they can't lay hold on his words, but it's not because they're getting slime all over their hands. You know that kind of person, you can't pin them down. You can't pin them down because they're slimy. I remember uh, at a trial once, at a, at a hearing, I was representing a woman who was a victim of some kind of domestic abuse. And I was cross-examining her, I think it was boyfriend. And I was going to pin him down, trying to pin him down on something, something he had said to someone else. And he looked straight in the eye, me in the eye, and told an absolute bald-faced lie under oath. But do you know Why? Because we couldn't get the other side of that conversation to come to court. We couldn't get it. And he knew she wasn't there. And he knew I couldn't pin him down. He knew I couldn't prove it. So I asked him straight to his face. And he looked at me almost, almost with a hint of a smile and said, no. Just knew. No, Jesus wasn't avoiding getting pinned down because he was slimy like a fish. Jesus wasn't getting pinned down. And in the process, though, he was telling the truth. And he was utterly exposing them. He wasn't pinning, getting pinned down, but in the process, he was getting mud over all his accusers' faces. And we're going to see this today in this very difficult subject for the Jews of how to relate to God and Caesar, the emperor of Rome. You're going to see Jesus not allowing his words to be pinned down and used against him, but in the process, utterly impeaching the credibility of the very people who were cross-examining, flipping the script entirely. Christ on trial, God and Caesar. Now, you and I are going to need to spend some time on some history for you really to understand what's going on here. Because if you're just coming to this as a 21st century American and saying, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not, you're going to entirely miss the difficult question that they were posing to him. Let me tell you, friends, this was a brilliant lawyerly question they asked. I mean brilliant. This was utterly tailored to make him look bad no matter what he said. And let me show you why. We're going to start first of all by talking about the tax. The tax. This is a question about taxes. Will you look with me in verse number 13 of chapter 12? Scripture says, and they. Now we talked about that last week. Who were the they. It was the Sanhedrin council, the kind of legislature of, of Judea, of, of, the, of, of Judaism. And these elites send to him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they send to a master, that is to say, teacher or rabbi. We know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of man, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to give tribute? Now, unless you understand what they're saying there, you're not gonna, this is not really going to make sense to you in its full import. The word that is translated tribute there in our King James Bible is literally the word which would be related to our word census. Cane sauce is the idea of the, is the Greek word. Census is what we would use. Is it lawful to give census to Caesar or not? You say, what on earth? Those under Roman rule would have three different taxes that they would pay. At least three different taxes, as historians tell us. The first one was a land tax. It was a ground tax. And what that was is if you were a landowner and you were producing grain, you would have to give one-tenth of your grain to Caesar. 
a 10% tax. If you were producing wine or fruit, you had to give a 20% tax. 10% on grain, as a landowner in Israel, 20% on wine or other fruits. Those are insignificant taxes. Another tax was an income tax. You had to give 1% of your income to Caesar. So if you were a landowner, you'd have to give the fruits of your land. Why? Because Caesar owned the land. If you were an income earner, you would have to give 1% of your income. But then there was some other tax imposed only on certain people. It was a poll tax, P-O-L-L. It was the census tax. Now, we know of a census in which every four years someone might come to your house and interview you about the people, number of people in your house and what kind of ethnicity they are and what kind of demographic you have. That is a census so that our United States government knows the people that are in their country. Well, to the Romans, it would be something similar. They would levy a census. They would levy a poll tax and every person, every male between, uh, I think it was 14 and 64, or 65, 14 and 65, and every woman between 12 and 65 would need to pay the poll tax. Now, what was the poll tax? One Roman coin, the denarius. When Jesus speaks here, says, give me the penny, do you have the penny? You know what he's actually saying? Give me the denarius. That's literally the transliteration. Give me the denarius. He was talking about the money that was used to pay this poll tax. He's not talking in this passage about every single tax. As Mark records it for us, he's talking about the poll tax. You say, why is that relevant? Because here's who paid the poll tax. Galileans didn't pay the poll tax. Jesus wouldn't have grown up paying the poll tax he would have paid taxes to Herod Antipas. Okay, let's back up for a little bit. Do you remember Herod the Great in the Bible? The king who was there when Jesus was born, and he was the king who slaughtered the innocents in Bethlehem because he wanted to wipe out the new king? That's Herod the Great, a wicked man, but a powerful ruler. He was a vassal king under Rome. In other words, he wasn't the ultimate sovereign. Caesar was the ultimate sovereign. But Caesar let him be the king, a kind of vassal king, territorial king, over Israel. When he died, his rule was split up into three parts. You've heard it said maybe in our Bibles about a tetrarch. A tetrarch, that just means ruling over three, one-third. His three sons, three of his sons, broke up each of his rule into three parts. There was Herod Antipas. We've looked at him before. Herod Antipas was the one who slaughtered John the Baptist. Okay? It's not the same as Herod the Great. This is his son ruling over Galilee, the northern part of Israel. You had another son, Philip II. He was in, took another third. And the third that was over Judea, over the city of Jerusalem, was a man named Archelaus. Archelaus. Now, Archelaus ended up being a terrible administrator. So Caesar deposed him. He booted him from the throne. He says, you're done. Do you know when this happened? A.D. 6. The 6th year A.D. You say, well, why is this relevant? You can look it up historically. You can look any of these things up. What happened was, when he kicked out Herod Archelaus, he imposed a Roman governor, a Roman proconsulate. Now, which Roman governor are you familiar with over Jerusalem? Pilate. We'll look at him very soon. But originally, there was a governor named Cyrenius. We read about Cyrenius elsewhere in Scripture. And do you know what Cyrenius did when he stepped in as the Roman governor? Not the, now, not the king, not the vassal king. The Roman governor under Caesar. He imposed a poll tax. He imposed a a census that every male between 14 and 65, every female between 12 and 65 needed to pay. Because now you were paying Rome. You weren't paying Herod the Great. And he was operating services. Now, in Judea, what was happening? It was Roman rule. And so Caesar's 
Caesar's logic was, I'm the one providing the services here. It's not a vassal king anymore. It's my Roman government. So pay up. Pay up. But it was more than that. It was an act of sovereignty. You see, on that coin, that denarius, that each of the Jewish men and women of a certain age in Judea had to pay up, was a particular image. And again, I'm just talking historically. You can go Google today. Roman coins of this time, and you can look at pictures of them. In fact, you can go collect them. This is no secret. This is historical fact. On these coins would be inscripted the face of Caesar. At Jesus' day, it was Tiberius Caesar. It was the son of Caesar Augustus, one of the greatest rulers the world has ever known. His son was Tiberius And on this coin, Tiberius minted his face. Now, we don't know precisely what coin Jesus took. It could have been a coin bearing Augustus' face. Those were still in circulation. It could have been a a coin with Tiberius' face. We don't know exactly what one. But we do know that Tiberius minted coins that had his face on it. And do you know what they said? I'll read the inscription or at least the English translation, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Do you know what he was saying? I am the son of God. Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Do you know what was on the back? On the back was a picture of a woman seated. Some people think it was Livia, Tiberius, sister's, uh, Tiberius Caesar's mother, and Caesar Augustus's wife. Dressed as the pox, the peace. Pax Romana was the great, the great blessing of the Roman Empire. Peace that prevailed through that part of the world for so long. And on the back, it was identifying Tiberius Caesar as Pontifex Maximus. You know what that means? High priest. Can you imagine going to the Jewish people who had a second commandment that prohibited making any image of any human figure and stamping on it Tiberius Caesar, the son of God, the son of the divine Augustus, and on the back saying, High Priest, when their high priest, God's high priest, was sitting in the temple at Jerusalem sacrificing and said, pay this to me. How, do, how would you feel? How do you think they felt? Oh, they hated it. In fact, in AD 6, when this tax was imposed, there was a man named Judas of Galilee. He's actually in scripture. You actually can see him referenced in Acts chapter 5 by a man named Gamaliel. He actually literally references Judas of Galilee. He says, in the days of the taxing, That's this. This is historical, folks. This is real. Judas of Galilee led a revolt against these taxes. He said, this is simply the the first step towards, towards slavery. This is just an introduction to slavery. No tribute to Caesar. No tribute to Rome. This is Rome stepping it in our faces. This is idolatry. To some even, this is a violation of the second commandment. It was blasphemy. It was idolatry. It was heresy. And these folks were utterly against paying this tax. You see, Judas of Galilee was put down and killed. He was murdered. You read that actually in in Scripture. But actually, friends, this same issue remains such a hot-button issue to the Jewish people that this was at the heart of the utter destruction of Jerusalem. The war of AD 66, about 30 years after Jesus, we talked about it last week, the brutal siege that happened against the city of Jerusalem was over what? Was over taxes. The same kind of zealots, there's actually the party, the zealot party, Remember when we studied the disciples of Jesus, one of them, his name was Simon the Zealot? He was actually one, a member of that party. He probably was a former member of that party, 
after coming and following Jesus. But this was all over society. They had an uprising against Rome over these taxes, and Rome came and utterly brutalized them, wiped out the city of Jerusalem, knocked it to the ground, destroyed the temple. This was a powder keg. This was an incredibly fraught political and theological issue. And do you know what they came to Jesus with? First, there's the tax. Secondly, there's the trap. The trap. Can you see the jaws of this trap opening up for Jesus? I'll show you why. Will you look with me here again at verse number 13? And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. Who are the two parties here? The Pharisees and the Herodians. They say, well, what's the relevance of that? I'll tell you. Because ordinarily Pharisees and Herodians wouldn't have much to do with each other. Have you ever heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my... The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Pharisees were the religiously devout ones. The ones who were the elite religious fabric of society. The ones who called the shots about how Judaism worked in a religious sense. You know who the Herodians were? To the Pharisees, they were utter sellouts. They weren't necessarily very religious at all. If anything, they were more secular. But why were they called Herodians? Scholars think because they supported the Herodian rule. They were like a political party. Oh, we're on, we're on Herod's side. And that required them to work with Rome because the Herods were Roman vassal kings. So they were the ones who were, in a sense, opposed to sign of this Jewish rule, this Jewish zealot identity. They were the sellouts. They were the quislings. They were the cowards. They were the ones working with the oppressor, not standing against him. You say, what would these two groups have anything to do with each other? They were very threatened by Jesus. So do you know what they do? These two very different groups come. And it says, they came to catch him in his words. This word, catch, catch him. This is the only place in the entire New Testament that this Greek word is used. And it's actually, you have to understand, it's the word that is used for trapping or stalking an animal. They were stalking him like you would stalk a deer in the forest. Like you'd go after an animal that you wanted to trap or to shoot and to kill. That's what their goal was. It wasn't sincere. Notice their approach. Will you look with me at verse 14? They say, Master, teacher, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. We know that you are true. Let me ask you this. Did the Pharisees believe that? This was entirely insincere. We know that you are true. Listen to these flowery words. You care for no man. In other words, you don't respect persons. You don't say one thing to someone else and, some, and, and, and something else to another. What were they saying? You're a man of integrity. You know, the tragedy was these Pharisees had no integrity. They really didn't. But they wanted to hold Jesus to a higher standard. Look at what they're also saying. For, the, for thou regardest not the person of man. This is a very interesting idiom in the Greek. It, the scholars tell us the idea is you don't look anyone in the face. What does that mean? What, it, what they were saying was you don't say something to someone's face that you say differently behind their back. You're straight up sincere. You tell the truth. By the way, what do we call what they were doing to Jesus? What's the biblical word we use? Flattery? Flattery? Do you know flattery and gossip are two sides of the exact same coin? Gossip is you saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. That's gossip. You say something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Can you believe this jerk? Can you believe, do you know what this person did? You'd never say it to their face, but you'll comfortably say it behind their back. Don't gossip, folks. Don't gossip. I remember on this Mother's Day to the wonderful grandmother I had, my mother's mom, Glee Shaw, if any of you knew her, one of the strongest women I've, I've have ever known. I mean, the type that as a widow in northern Minnesota, in blizzards, in her 70s by herself, would be out plowing her driveway with a Bronco. I mean, that kind of lady, right? And the thing, one of the things I respected most about my grandma, oh, she'd tell you to your face 
what, you, what she thought. She'd identify your character flaws to you, to your face. But behind your back, she, you would never have a more loyal advocate. I still remember, I still remember, it was very, very interesting. We've compared notes after the fact with my cousins. My grandma would tell us, oh, you're not working hard enough. You, you've got all these issues in your family. Your cousins, you know, your cousins aren't, uh, they're the best workers you should see. And, and then my cousins would confirm she was telling similar things to them. She would be very honest to your face, but she would be incredibly loyal behind your back. That's not always very common. We're prone to gossip. But do you know what flattery is? Flattery is the exact opposite. Fla- yes, that's right. Flattery is saying to some, someone, something to someone's face that you'd never say behind their back. Flattery is praising someone to their face in a way that you wouldn't say privately about them behind their back. And here, they were coming to him with a lie. They were trying to butter him up. They were trying to get him to say, we know that you speak truth. We know that you're a man of complete and utter integrity. So tell the truth here, Jesus. Tell the truth here. Don't be afraid. Now notice what the question they ask him is. Shall, is it lawful, I'm sorry, to give tribute, a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? Now notice the question here. They say, is it lawful? They don't mean, is it politically lawful? Is it lawful under Rome to do this? That wasn't the question they were asking. They were asking him as a teacher, is it right? Is, it, is God okay with us giving this poll tax to Caesar? Now think about the question. Think about why they were saying that. Because you were required to give Caesar a coin that identified him as divine. You were intending to give a a blasphemous piece of money potentially identifying Tiberius as the high priest. Is this idolatry? Is it permitted under under the second commandment? Is it lawful? Now you say, why was this such a clever question? Because it put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Have you ever heard that phrase, the horns of a dilemma? The horns of a dilemma means either way you lose. Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. Say yes, you're impaled on this sharp horn. Say no, and you're impaled on this on this sharp horn. You can't win. You can only lose. You say, why? Well, think about it. Jesus, they say, Jesus, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? And Jesus says, yes, it is. God wants you to. And then all the Jews in Jerusalem who hated that poll tax bitterly look at him and say, we thought you were a pro-Jewish kind of guy. How can you be our king, the king over God's people, if you're a sellout to Rome? Get out of here. That's what the Pharisees wanted him to say. And what happens if he said no? No, you don't have to pay that poll tax to Caesar. Don't have to worry about that. It's not lawful. It's wrong. You know those Herodians would have been running faster than their stubby little legs could have carried them to to Pontius Pilate and said, he's a tax denier. He's a tax evader. He's a threat to Roman rule. This popular teacher ordering people not to pay taxes. Arrest him and put him to death. In fact, in Luke, we see they tried that goal with him anyway. They went to Pilate and said, this man is commanding people not to pay taxes. So it was the horns of a dilemma. Either way, they were hoping that he would be trapped like a cornered animal. This is Jesus under cross-examination, and they think they've got the perfect question. But can we look finally at what I'm going to call the truth? The truth Here's what I love about Jesus. You're not going to be able to lay your hands on his words. You're just not going to be able to. But like I said, he doesn't do it because he's slimy. He's like a fish slipping out of your grasp. He's going to still tell you the truth. He's just not going to do it in a way that you can pin him to the wall with a deceptive and fraudulent charge. Listen to what he says. Will you notice with me? Let's dive into this. He, knowing their hypocrisy, he knew they were just play-acting. He knew they were not sincere. He said, why tempt ye me? This is, why do you put me to the test? 
Why are you cross-examining me like this? I see right through your game. That was the idea of what he was saying. He said unto them, Bring me a penny, literally a denarius. Bring me that Roman coin, that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? Who's the face on the coin and what's the writing? Who's, who wrote this? And notice what they say. Caesar's. Can we, can't you just see him snarl that out? Caesar's. By the way, did you notice that Jesus didn't have one of these coins? But did you notice that someone among them did? Fascinating. Hey, Give me one of those Roman coins you hate paying taxes in. Oh, oh, here, Jesus. Here. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. And notice what Jesus says to them. He answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And do you know what happens? They about swallowed their tongues. They marveled at him. They could only stammer. Well, that's not the horns of the dilemma we were looking to place you on. Well, Jesus, you got out of that one pretty well, but it wasn't, would have, I don't think it would have just been that. They marveled at what he had to say. Let's dig into this a little more. I'll tell you, friends, these simple words of Jesus are among the most famous that he's ever said. Do you know Mahatma Gandhi talked about these words, commented on them? Henry David Thoreau, one of the great American poets, commented on these words. There, it doesn't matter whether you love Jesus or hate him. It doesn't matter whether you accept his claims or whether you reject them. You've probably grappled with these words. What does it mean to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to give to God the things that are God's? He didn't give them a simple yes or no. And friends, he didn't give us a simple yes or no either. He wants us to think about it. He wants us to wrestle with it. And let me just say, as I love to say over and over, or something like it from this pulpit, you've got to wrestle with your Bibles. You can't just open up your Bible on our Bible reading plan, read through your three chapters from the day, snap the Bible closed, and go on with the rest of your day. Are you going to be a student of the Bible, or are you not? And to take these words, you can find online, friends, just about any interpretation you can possibly imagine from these words. Very, very different interpretations of what Jesus means. So we, that means we better put our thinking caps on and we better think. The first thing is notice the two spheres that Jesus is identifying here. Notice what he's saying. You give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus is assuming, he is presuming that Caesar has things. He's got things that are under his authority. And here's why. Because he had just gotten a coin. And it had Caesar's face on it. And it had his writing on it. And guess where those Jewish people got it from? They got it from Caesar. Why? Because as I said, when a king took control, when a new emperor stepped in, do you know what he did? He made money. He made money with his face on it because that was an act of sovereign right. I am king and I make money. And these coins were floating around Jerusalem. And Jesus said, look, this own coin proves that Caesar's got some things. This this, This coin presumes that he's got authority here and you're carrying it. So therefore, if Caesar has things, give, render, that word literally means just give back. Give back to Caesar what is his. Now, if he had stopped here, they would have said, Aha, okay, you just said to pay taxes. We got you. But then Jesus says this, And, and, to God, render, give back to God what is God's. Okay, well, wait a second. What does that mean? Do you see there are two spheres? Caesar has things. And you should render back to him. And God has things, and you should render back to him. Friends, this passage teaches what Scripture teaches elsewhere. That there is a legitimate sphere of civil, political authority. 
There are spheres of authority. There are spheres of authority over a nation. That's a civil government. There are spheres of authority over a church, like ours, who is in leadership. There are spheres of authority in a home. There are spheres of authority everywhere. And there are particular spheres in which that is appropriate. And Jesus says, Caesar has a sphere. And God has a sphere. And you better rightly relate to both of them. By the way, let me say this. It has been commonplace in some of our circles to refer to our country as a Christian nation. But I want to tell you that's a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. Can we agree that we were founded by people, some of whom were Christians? Yes. Can we agree that we were founded on principles, many of which we identify or believe are biblically based? Yes. But we are not a Christian nation, because there cannot be. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. His Christian kingdom is not of this world. You cannot have a Christian Jesus kingdom here on earth. You cannot. There is no such thing. There is absolutely no ability to identify a nation as Christian. They are two different spheres. Caesar, God. But here's the second point. The sphere, as once he identifies two spheres, Caesar's things and God's things, he doesn't tell us the scope. He doesn't tell us how those two circles interact, how those two spheres connect to one another. He just says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. So we've got to put our thinking caps back on. Friends, what is the scope of the things that are God's? What's God's? Everything. Do you remember the psalm? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For he founded it. He founded it. What is God's? What are the things that are God's? Everything. Do you know what that means? Caesar's got this puny little circle that are his things. You say, what are his things? Well, think about what our government does for us. Yes, it taxes us, but it provides many Wonderful things that make society worth living in today. They pave roads. They build infrastructure. They provide certain social or safety nets. They do other things that are part of their sphere, their things. They arrest and prosecute criminals. They praise the ones who are good. They pass, hopefully, just laws. That's their sphere. And Jesus seems to be saying here, you want to know what the way bigger sphere is? The circle that entirely captures Caesar's circle? It's God's. He has everything. Okay? Render to Caesar what's in his little sphere. But you better render to God everything. Everything. Now, it's, it's here where we can be divided in one of two ways. I read this as I was studying. One, part, one particular view of looking at this is what Jesus is saying is you should never pay taxes. Because you only give to Caesars his things. But you've got to give God's his things first. And if God has everything, then don't give anything to Caesar. Now, is that what Jesus was saying? We see that elsewhere in Scripture. That's not what he was saying. Here's what Jesus, I think, was saying. He was living out, he was testifying to what Scripture tells us elsewhere, which is simply this. Caesar's sphere, his sovereignty, his rule, is only only derived from God. Because God has everything. Do you know the Bible makes this point over and over? Let me read for you from the Old Testament. Daniel God speaking through Daniel and ultimately, and before that even, a messenger from God. He, God drives proud Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire away from his throne 
the most powerful empire of the Middle East of that day. He drives him from his throne. He goes down into the grass and starts eating grass like an ox, his hair growing long, his fingernails growing long. And listen to why God's judgment fell. He says, And seven times, God tells Nebuchadnezzar, shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of man and gives it to whomsoever he will. Nebuchadnezzar, you've been running around in your sphere here of your own kingdom like you own the place. But you need to know, Nebuchadnezzar, that it's the Most High who rules in the affairs of man. He is the one who sets up kings. He is the one who puts down kings. And he gives it to whomsoever he will. The New Testament makes that same point. Listen to Romans chapter 13. This is Paul's command, inspired command to us as Christians. He says, let every soul be subject, be in submission to the higher powers, the governing authorities, the governing rulers. Listen to why. He's going to explain. For there is no power but of God. Do you agree with that? There's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God ordained Tiberius Caesar to rule over Rome? Do you believe that God ordained President Joe Biden and our Supreme Court and our Congress and our Governor Tim Walls and our legislature and our Minnesota Supreme Court? Do you believe that God ordained them? We have to. There's no other choice. There is no power but those of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Yes, give Caesar the things that are in Caesar's sphere, but remember that all around that whole sphere is the sovereignty of Almighty God who sets kings up and rulers and puts others down. Do you know Jesus would say the same thing to the Roman governor, Pilate, in a few days? When Pilate tried to put him under cross-examination, listen to what Jesus said in John 19. He said, Pilate says, Speakest thou not unto me? Aren't you going to answer my questions? He says, Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. You, Pilate, your Roman governor, you couldn't have any authority over me unless God had given it to you first. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. Think about that answer. The brilliance of that answer. The Pharisees were hoping to get an unqualified, absolutely yes, so that they could go run, accuse him to the Jewish people, and they got kind of a, uh, serve God above all. Hmm, how do we lay hold on that one? The Herodians wanted a clear, no, don't do that, so they could run to, to, to Pilate and have him killed. And what did they get? No, Caesar does have a place. You better recognize God's. They couldn't lay hold on it. He had once again slipped from their grasp only to put egg or mud on their faces, recognizing their hypocrisy. You see, what's the ultimate source that Jesus is appealing to here? He's appealing to God's authority. He's appealing to God's sovereignty. Listen to what 1 Peter 2, you can write this down and look at it on your own time. Listen to what 1 Peter 2 commands us. He says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. And what are the next words? Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Don't miss that. Submit to every higher power. Yes, that's the Minnesota state government. Yes, that's the U.S. federal government. Submit to them. Why? For the Lord's sake. Do you know why? Because rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's is actually for the Lord's sake rendering unto God the things that are God's. 
because Caesar is only there because of God. You see that? Friends, we just passed tax season unless you got an extension. I hope you paid your taxes scrupulously and honestly. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Why? Because in doing it for the Lord's sake, recognizing his sovereign authority over our IRS agents, because we're ultimately doing it for his sake. Paul couldn't be more clear. Pay all their tribute. Pay all their taxes. Do it. But it's ultimately because we're submitting to him. I love what Peter goes on to say. He says that we are to act as free as free men and women, utterly free. Why? Because you and I aren't, in a sense, of this world. We're of Christ's kingdom. Our first identity isn't as Americans. Our first identity isn't as Minnesotans. Our first identity is as servants of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And therefore, I am a pilgrim here. I am a stranger here. I'm utterly free. But because I render to God the things that are God's, because I render to Him all of my service, I therefore am free, and yet I willingly, voluntarily, indeed, even joyfully, submit to my governing authorities. Now, the source of authority is God, and that tells us, submit, do it. But there's one other thing. It tells us the limits of that authority. Because if God is the source of all things, if he is the ruler over all things, what does that tell me? It tells me what I can never submit in. It tells me that I can never disobey God in order to obey man. That's why we read in the book of Acts, the early church, Peter and John, saying to the leaders of that day, we ought to obey God rather than men. And yes, friends, when Caesar commands you to act in such a way that would violate the clear teaching of the Bible, when they call you to violate your conscience that's rooted in Scripture, you and I must stand and say, we obey God rather than men. We give you all of your things. We render to everything that is yours, that is within your sphere. But when it comes to my relationship with God and what's in His sphere, not in your sphere, then we must Obey him. You say, what's the exact line? Don't ask me. Jesus didn't tell us what the exact line is. He said, think it out. Work it out. Have a posture of complete submissiveness to your governing leaders and have a posture of complete, ultimate submission to me and to what I tell you to do. There's no clear line. He didn't give us one. He says, you got to think it out. You've got to trust in me to reason through these challenges. Where does that leave us here today? You don't have to pay that kind of poll tax. We're very blessed to live in a land that that above and beyond just about any society that has ever lived allows us to live out our conscience before God and freely exercise our faith. We should be grateful every single day for the place and the time in which he's put put us. But what does that mean for you? Let me just suggest a couple things very quickly. Mothers today, have you ever grown fearful of raising your children in a world like today? Have you grown fearful of what it's going to be like in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years? What's our government going to be doing then? What kind of secularization are we going to be facing? What is Caesar going to be demanding someday? Here's the point. Don't be afraid. Resist fear. Why? Because heaven rules earth. You see? Caesar is earth. The things of Caesar's, we should render to him. But Jesus is saying, render to God the things that are God's. And he has everything. He is in control. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of where our country is going. Don't be afraid of where our leaders you think might take us. Don't be afraid. Because heaven rules earth. And we need to stand on that. And we need to be secure in that. Here's the second point. Recognize the source of your authority 
You say, what do you mean by that? Are you a mom or are you a dad? Are you a boss? Are you a pastor? Are you in leadership? Remember that you're just like Caesar. You do have a sphere of authority in your home. You do have a sphere of authority at your workplace. You do render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There's a truth in which a dad and a mom can say to a child living at home, living off the fat of the land and off the pantry cl- uh, uh, closet, in which a mom and dad can rightly say, render unto mom and dad the things that are mom and dad's. There's a right sphere of authority in that way. But friends, ultimately, who owns everything? Who has this authority over us that is supreme? It's God. And ultimately, I better see in the way that I deal with my kids and the way that I lead the people around me, they better see that it's not my authority ultimately. They better see that it's His. Ephesians 6 says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not mine. They're his kids before they're my kids. And I need to bring them up in a way that ultimately is humbly submitting to his authority, not trying to proudly enforce my own. Let's make sure we're recognizing his authority. Third and and last before we close, what are you rendering to God today, friend? I want you to think about that coin, that little Roman coin, There was Tiberius Caesar on the face. It was stamped with his image. And there was a superscription written over it with his words. Friend, you are a coin. You are a coin. You've been stamped with the image of Almighty God. We were made in his image and in his likeness. His superscription, if we are in Christ, is written over us. His banner over us is love. His name is stamped on us. And therefore, just as Jesus could look at that Roman coin and say to his interrogators, you render to Caesar what is Caesar's, so Almighty God can look at us, who he has stamped with his image and with the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and says, render back. Friends, you and I have been bought with a price. We've been stamped with his image. Therefore, glorify God. Glorify God in everything that you and your body do this week.